Another pot of coffee is brewing. My third cup is almost finished. So that means it's time for Not Before Coffee. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, film addict, hermit, long-term depression sufferer, and caffeine fiend. It's actually more like eight cups right now, and I'm shaking just a little bit, but oh well, you can't see it. In this week's episode, episode six no less, I am going to be doing a mini film review and delve into a diary I was writing when my mental health issues first became very obvious and I should probably have started to get help. But first, it's time for another instalment of My Dreams Are Fucking Weird. This time, the realms of reality left me in a huge way. Or should that be, I left the realms of reality? And I blame this 100% on the fact that last weekend I watched and sobbed repeatedly over the amazing Onward. Seriously, if you haven't seen it yet, then I recommend you watch it. I do know that another podcast, Talking the Mickey, is actually going to be going over this film today as this episode is released. Anyway, back to the bizarre mythologically based story that was my dream one night last week. Not all of it was 100% based in the world of dragons and quests as for a moment I swear I could hear my dad's voice. Again I am blaming Onward for this 100% but soon enough I was standing in the middle of a dark woodland grove. I could see flickering lights off in the distance They could have been fireflies, but then again, I have never seen fireflies outside of a Disney film and yellow eyes have played a big part in previous nightmares, so I have no doubt it was the latter. This dream had so little story, I'm not actually sure where to start. In fact, I did contemplate doing another, I didn't dream this week, but then I realised that would be a complete lie and you need to hear how oddly mythologically based some of my dreams happen to be they're not all about murder and guns and shooting and I have no idea why my dreams end up being about murder and guns and shooting because I don't even read thrillers and I'm not massively keen on reading horror anymore either okay it was a dark and stormy no, actually it wasn't. It Well, it, it was dark, but it wasn't stormy. In fact, it wasn't even drizzling. So dark and stormy has no place here. I'm trying to make this sound way more dramatic than it actually was. It's one of my dreams and I am a drama queen of the night. Yeah, uh, not in that way. I was really cold, that I do remember. I pulled the jacket I was wearing up around my ears and then I started walking deeper into these dark woods where I could see yellow lights in the distance. I would like to say that dream me takes after overly cautious real world me, but right here and now I can honestly say she's an idiot. Yeah, I'm honestly saying she is an idiot because dream me is a total tit. At some point, I can see a light in the distance. I've already mentioned I could see these yellow lights and they were no doubt eyes. And I start to make my way towards it because, of course, the one part of real me that's actually in this dream is my bloody dreadful sense of direction. And I am not joking. I actually went 
to see my grandparents once with my mum and my younger brother and sister we got off the train and I told everybody I know exactly where we're going follow me we ended up four miles in the wrong direction had to phone my grandfather to ask him to come and pick us up and then I was teased about it constantly for about three years anyway I'm lost in the woods, there's a light somewhere in the distance and I have no idea what I'm doing, where I'm going or why I'm actually there in the first place. I am bored though, in the dream, not in real life, but I'm suddenly reminded of the fact that this little jaunt isn't for fun, though I don't, as I've said, know what it is for. I can hear a roar from somewhere in the distance, so of course instead of being sensible and logical, I head in the direction of said roar. Yeah, we have already established dreamy is stupid. I finally reach the light. It's a small hut surrounded by nettles and bramble bushes and a great big sign telling me to stay away. Yeah, and I don't actually take any notice of it at all. I ignore it completely and I walk straight through the door. It's the only shelter I've come across. There is something big and loud in the woods and I am lost. So of course I'm going to head there. Goldilocks has nothing on me. It seems like I've learned nothing. I push open the door, walk into the hut and immediately fall through a hall. A hole? A hall? <laughs> I immediately fall through a hall. A hole? Oh my good grief. I immediately fall through a hole in the floor. As the light fades, a shadow appears above the hole, a husky laugh and then a roar, and then I am left in the dark to think. I have to be honest, I'm not sure which dreams are the worst ones, the ones that are grounded in some distorted sense of reality, or the ones that are like this, a pseudo-fairy tale world that is dark and eerie, kind of like an Angela Carter book. I do think that this was likely influenced by a lot of things that I've read or watched over the last few months because as much as I love fantasy films and books I don't tend to write that kind of content and I'm not that creative when it comes to the fantasy world no matter what I try and tell myself. A few weeks ago I mentioned that I had been really lax when it came to watching anything new that I could review having spent far too much time, as we've established, watching Disney+. Plus. Again, I note, onward. And so my Disney Channel original movie, or DCOM, reviews were born. Last week on Twitter, I asked my followers, and here I have to say thank you so much to every single person who has helped me get to over 800 followers. I'm now headed to 850 and I cannot thank you enough. And I asked all of you to vote for your favourite DCOM. For most of the week it looked like the Xenon trilogy was going to win. And I have to be honest, that would have been my weekend viewing, which is ideal when you're ill. As you may have seen on Twitter... I had the worst viral throat infection last week and having had meetings all day Monday, my voice was virtually non-existent come Monday night, which is why I'm posting on Thursday. Unfortunately, for anyone who voted for Xenon, another option came out of nowhere. Okay, just two votes behind, two pipped at the post. All will be revealed in a moment. However, 
Right now, I'm going to briefly stray into the end of October. I was planning on doing an episode all about Halloween Town. You know, the popular pre-Harry Potter magic movie that was brought out by Disney and had three sequels. Well, this week I heard another podcast and they did it way better than I could. Hello, we are being nostalgic. The podcast where we break down 80s and 90s movies with deep dives. Roger Rabbit has this line that says, all we want to do is make people laugh. Mm -hmm. Now, do they have the knowledge that people die from laughing too much? Because I can agree. <laughs> Does he want to murder everyone with laughter? <laughs> Hot takes. Yes, using Die Hard rules for all you Die Hard to Christmas movie people over there because it has a Christmas party. It came out in July, people. It's it's a proven fact now that Princess Bride is a Christmas movie because Santa Claus is a decoration in the background that makes multiple appearances behind Peter Falk. Boom! Christmas movie. And lots of laughs. Like, one of my kids that was always in the corner. You peed, they pooped right there. <laughs> <laughs> Horrible. Oh god. That's why I don't like ball things. Again, that's the nostalgia. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and more. Please enjoy the rest of this audio module. But don't head over there until you finish listening to this episode. This week, I am going to be talking about the 2009 DCOM dadnapped. Disney was definitely going through a databank of its TV shows when it put together the cast for this one, as it features the secondary characters from two of its biggest noughties properties. From Hannah Montana, we have Emily Osmond, Jason Earls, and Moises Arias. And from the Wizards of Waverly Place, we have Jennifer Stone and David Henry. There's also Phil Lewis from The Sweet Life, and George Newbern, who is probably best known for playing Annie's husband in Father of the Bride and its sequel. I'm not sure what it is about Disney Channel original movies, but it's incredibly rare to find a complete family unit, and Dadnapped is no different. Though this time I have to admit that no parents were killed in the writing of this film, they just end up divorced. Though, being fair, I think that I would divorce Neil too. So, let's get on with the tale. Melissa Morris is in high school. I'm guessing that it's the last day before they break up for the summer as when we see her, she's at the back of the class listening to book reports and the teacher has a massive sign behind him on the board proclaiming summer reading. Anyway, whatever time of year it is, though it's sunny so I am going to go with summer, she is anxious for the day to end because she's got plans with her dad, Neil, to go away for a week of camping. Neil is a famous author of books about a young male spy called Trip Zoom. He doesn't realise that his daughter constantly feels as though she comes second best to his fictional creation, to the point that she actually has conversations with him, Trip that is, to the point where she even sees him cozying up to her parents in family photos. I have to say, if I started hallucinating like this without the aid of my migraine medication, then I would be heading straight to the hospital for a brain scan. However, she doesn't do this. It's apparently a characteristic that she has and one that continues throughout the film. The new Trip Zoom book has just been released and that's all anyone can talk about. A student in her class talked about it as his presentation. Her teacher gushed about it, which I have to say I found uncomfortable to watch as an adult. 
and talk of the new book is even on the evening news. So no matter what she does or where she is, Melissa cannot escape from it. She's really excited about the prospect of going on a camping trip with her dad, even though she is seemingly also used to him letting her down for whatever reason, whether it's to do with books or other arrangements that he happens to make at the last minute. Of course, Neil does end up showing up at his ex-wife's house to collect Melissa for their trip. And the moment he arrives, you can see why they separated. Seriously, this scene, I just wanted to slap him with the book. He's so self-absorbed. The first thing he does when he walks through the door is hand his ex-wife a copy of his new book and mention that it's autographed. Seriously, why would anybody do this? He then proceeds to talk about nothing but the book, the sales, the promotions, even when he's there to pick up his daughter who it seems he hasn't seen for a while. The pair pack up the car with Melissa's things and she isn't amused, and I don't think I would be either, to discover that there is another traveller in the car, a huge cardboard cutout of Trip Zoom, her fictional nemesis. It's at this point that I realise that her dad is so oblivious to how his daughter feels that I know he's going to do something that is going to let her down. Melissa is proving really excited about the camping trip. She tells her dad about the games she's packed, the new boots she's purchased, and other things she's done to prepare. And then he drops a bombshell on her. The trip is not going to be camping, at least not immediately, because he's been invited to a Mercury Zoom convention. So they're going to be making a pit stop in order that he can meet with all of his Zoom fans. There's no mention of the fact that he clearly doesn't spend much time with his daughter. And here my brain flipped. No joke, I was watching it. And the first thing I thought was, oh God, he's a selfish ass." The pair and the cutout pull into Mercury, which looks as though it's an 1880s town in need of refurbishment. In my head, I inserted several tumbleweeds into the scene and realised that this was actually what was missing. They head straight to the Mercury Hotel, which is, of course, the only hotel in town, because why wouldn't it be? And when they walk through the doors, the entire lobby is just packed with children. I'm guessing that these are all fans of Trip Zoom and they are all there for this convention. But where are the adults? You see very few adults in this film. And when you do see them, they aren't exactly proactive or involved in anything. Anyway... I've said they enter the hotel lobby and you get some shots of suspicious teens who are hiding behind newspapers watching Neil and Melissa heading for the check-in desk. Sweet life opening credits or what? They are welcomed by the owner of the hotel and this actually, when I watched it, surprised me a little bit because I knew that this particular actor was in the film but I hadn't expected him to have changed so much especially as this was actually filmed during the Hannah Montana run, bearing in mind this was in 2009 and Hannah Montana ran until 2011. The owner of the hotel, Merv, is played by Jason Earls. He is finally looking like the adult he is. Did you know that when Hannah Montana actually ended two years after this film was made, he was actually 34. They are shown to the presidential suite and... I have to be honest, it looked like it was the cheapest room in an easy hotel or Motel 6 if you're in the US. 
they are then left to their own devices for a little while and told that they can head down to the convention when they're ready. When Neil and Melissa head down to the convention room, it looks like none I have ever attended. In fact, if you've been to a convention, then this one would actually depress you. It was clearly set up in a hurry. The motives for this become clear closer to the end of the film. And the only reason Neil attends, I think, is because he has this need to be fawned over by his fans. Something I've already mentioned, he is incredibly self-absorbed and he wants nothing more than further recognition and admiration. He likes this worship that he gets from young fans who want to mimic his creation. I could be wrong, but if he has a best-selling book, there is no need for him to head to a last-minute convention in a no-name town in the middle of literally nowhere. Anyway, the convention begins, and it looks like it's being held in my old-school gym, which was barely big enough for a half-size basketball court. So this should give you an idea of how small this convention centre, which is somewhere in the hotel, actually is. At the same time... As Neil is announcing this fantastic competition to his fans, which is to create a working version of one of his character's spy inventions, Melissa bumps into someone at the door as she is heading out. And they have a bit of a snarky exchange about some kind of word game that both of them are obsessed with. Everyone is so intent on the competition that eventually she just walks away. The competition has set Neil's fans off. They're all desperate to prove themselves and win this fantastic prize for spending some time with him and getting their name in his next book. What no one is accounting for, of course, is the fact that there are three incredibly eager fans who want nothing more than to spend time with Neil to pick his brains. Wheeze, Andre and Sheldon don't even get me started on the weird names they are using in these films, played by David Henry Moises Arias and Denzel Whitaker, respectively, stink bomb the auditorium and while everyone is escaping, they kidnap Neil and drive away in Wheezy's van. Understandably, Melissa is concerned for her dad. She calls the police, gets the runaround from them, as given the number of kids in town, they are sure she's trying to play a trick on them. Knowing that she still needs to find her dad and having been fobbed off by the police, she heads to the nearest adult, who is Merv, played by Jason Earls, her co-star from Hannah Montana. Neil persuades the kidnappers to let him phone his daughter to let her know that he's okay. Neil persuades his kidnappers to let him phone Melissa to let her know that he's okay. And this information gives her enough to find out where he's being held. So she heads off with Merv in his car, following after her dad's kidnappers, who are literally kids, though one is old enough to drive. What Melissa doesn't realise is that there is another group of people desperate to kidnap her dad. Seriously, this is so dumb. And they are following Melissa and Merv using every single lead that Melissa discovers. Throughout the entire film, she is continually seeing and arguing with Trip Zoom, bouncing ideas off him, which is, again, I think I'd be going to the hospital for a brain scan. Of course, they do actually finally catch up with Wheeze and his friends, and then the crazy begins. And I can't believe I'm saying that's the point the crazy begins, but it is. I've already mentioned that there were other people after Neil, right? Well, enter Phil Lewis from The Sweet Life and Charles Halford. They are playing Morris and Skunk 
respectively. Again, what is with the names in these films? Skunk is a wannabe author and Morris is his very adoring and cooperative brother. And they've both got criminal records and this is why they have been hired as goons. Now, having custody of Neil and, unfortunately, Melissa, it's the turn of Wheeze and his friends to save the day because Morris and Skunk don't seem to be playing games. They want this book finished that Skunk has been struggling with and he kidnapped Neil in order to get his advice and help to write this book and get it published and they aren't averse to threatening to get it done. What ensues after this is a series of odd car and van chases, a car car horn used as a siren, which you just know is going to go wrong even before they start the endeavour, and then the piece de résistance, the unveiling of the true bad guy. So, anyone going to give a guess as to who it is? It's Merv from the hotel. Yes. Jason Earls in a very pastel pink, that sounds really derogative, it's not meant to be, but I just can't help thinking of him as Miley's brother in Hannah Montana and all the surf gear and everything else. And all of a sudden you see him in a waistcoat and jacket in pink, which seems very different to the character he's already playing in a TV show that I've seen. It turns out that Merv has an evil plan and from the very beginning he wanted to kidnap kidnap Neil which is why he set up the convention. We've established that Neil is selfish but there's no way he would have arranged to go to something without mentioning it unless it was very last minute and Merv is the only one with the facilities to set something up like this with little notice. His evil plan. I have to get to that. He wants to kidnap Neil, which he has done, and get him to write one final trip Zoom book and then never write again. The intention is that Merv will get rich having the last book because everybody will want it and he's the one who's got it. Needless to say, the entire fan network for Neil and Trip comes to the rescue. Aided by Melissa's ingenuity, she figures out how to create a signal to alert everyone to where they're being held captive in a room that looks far more like a presidential suite than the hotel room they were taken to in the first place. And the fans attack using their creations from the trip zoom competition. Everyone is freed. Merv runs away from the hordes that are chasing him and is eventually captured, but he's not captured by children, he's captured by a remorseful and incredibly angry Maurice and Skunk who have been wrapped up in dental floss. They stop him with the dental floss, having unwrapped themselves enough to trip him over. Having discovered that Merv was never intending to help Skunk get published, they both felt betrayed. The, f- the police finally show up after the children have done all their work for them. What I want to know is why in these films, the police, A, never believe what they're being told because it's children who are contacting them, and B, are never the ones to save the day. Don't put answers on a postcard. Thank you. Merv, Skunk and Maurice are ad- arrested. The convention ends. Wheeze, Andre and Sheldon conveniently win the prize. 
And then Weez and Melissa exchange phone numbers. <laughs> and the father and daughter duo head on their way. Oh, I missed a bit. Melissa and her dad finally have that much needed heart to heart and he reveals that everything in his books is modelled after her, that she's strong, independent, intuitive, etc, etc. So her jealousy of Trip was actually jealousy of herself. Sometimes the message with these films is incredibly clear. What I took away from this was that Melissa definitely needed to communicate her feelings better, perhaps tell her dad that he made her feel inadequate, that she wanted to spend more time with just him, and that she occasionally wanted to come first. But then, reversing that a little, she should also be proud of her dad, because he's achieved a lot. However, this film is not about him, it's about her. Of course, Neil also needs to do something. He needs to tone down that ego a little bit. He clearly let it take over and almost destroyed his relationship with his daughter. I had to refresh my mind with this one just a little bit a few nights ago, as there were things that I'd totally forgotten from the first viewing, like names and the name of the town even. But to be honest, the film was forgettable. It's never going to be a Xenon or a life-size, the sort of films that you remember from childhood to adulthood. But then maybe it doesn't have to be. It's a way to pass 90 minutes. Yep, that's all it was from start to finish. Exactly 90 minutes, though sometimes it felt like a lot longer. It also had a budget of $4.5 million, though it wouldn't have made much in return as it was direct-to-TV and now on Disney+. Plus. For that money, I think I would have probably invested a little bit more in the convention centre. I know, I keep on talking about this, but as someone who has been to conventions, that was the one bit that really grated on me. I knew that at some point I would have to do this, if only because... I have been very honest about my struggles, my current struggles with mental health. And when I was searching through boxes and boxes in my study last weekend, I actually came across the journal I was trying to find in order to talk about dreams in last week's episode. I didn't realise that there was nothing about dreams in this journal. In fact, it is nothing but information about my life and how I felt about everything from the beginning of the year I turned 16 until probably two-thirds of the way through the year I turned 20. So we are talking 1990 or at least that's the year it all started. I am so dramatic on the front page of this. It actually says, in my very, very juvenile 15-year-old handwriting, to be read in the event of my death. I'm being completely serious. It actually says that. Yeah, I was a tiny bit dramatic, but then how many 15-year-olds going back that far weren't queens of drama? I've already said that I am a sort of drama queen when it comes to my dreams but I was a drama queen or a little bit over emotional and very dramatic at the start of the year I turned 16 mostly because it was a good way to escape from reality the more I read through 
this diary, the more depressed I get. And I don't know if that's because it highlights all the issues I had and all the reasons I had pain a painful relationship with my mum or if it's because everything I did was incredibly dull. That sounds bad. But it's not too far from the truth, especially between the ages of 16 and 18. I look at the first entry was on January the 5th and I talk about the fact that I've just started writing a brand new story I've always written that my brother has gone to air cadets, my sister is at her friend's and my mum has a new boyfriend. That's the start of the diary. Then moves on just a week later, we've got a conversation. I had a lecture from my mum because I wasn't standing up straight. And it was back to the normal routine of how I hate the fact that she's constantly criticising me and it gets really annoying. Of course, move on another week. In fact, I don't think it's even... No, not even a week. We're talking five days and it's gone from me having a frustrated argument with my mum, me going to the opticians, nothing happening because I watched rubbish TV and... Actually, I'm going to buy a bicycle. I don't think I did. I think I bought a hi-fi. And then I decide I'm going to write two points of view about music TV because I think British TV doesn't have enough channels on it. And not two days later, my entry is, I'm really sorry if this comes off as incredibly blasé, but remember, I've probably been through this about six or seven times by this point. So... It is a really blasé and seemingly unemotional entry when, in actual fact, I'm most likely hiding the fact that a lot of what happened terrified the hell out of me. So, what a day. Excitement was what went on at home. So I have got a lot to write about. And when I say a lot, normally well now anyway, a lot means around 2,000 to 8,000 words. A lot when I was 15 was eight lines. Yeah, make of that what you will. So to continue, beep, came round, he was fine and then he went and came back again wanting to know who mum was going out with. She wouldn't tell him so he nearly killed her and then he tried something else. He saved her. He went and then came back, broke a window, and the police came round. What a day. Oh, what a day indeed. Okay, so I witnessed all of that and my reaction to it all was, what a day. I'm not sure if that says more about the fact that I've seen it too many times or the fact that I am so used to it that it's more a case of I'm writing this and at the same time I'm shrugging. And it probably was the latter because this is the same guy who drove a car into our house. We were constantly having the police called. He had seizures on our living room floor because he'd taken something and we didn't know what. And he got really violent. And this was all before I left home at the age of 18. So make of that what you will. I will stress this is not my dad. My dad passed, unfortunately, 
when I was 11, and this is obviously several years later. I actually apologise in my diary for not writing in it on a day. So on the Tuesday, two days after the incident, I actually write, sorry about yesterday, but now I'm back at school, there isn't much to talk about or tell anyone about, nothing that is worth reading. I'm really sorry about that. I'm not sure who I'm writing this for, though I do mention not that much later that my mum has been reading my diary and I start writing things in here that I never tell her. In fact, it is less than a month later. I say, I shouldn't write any of this in here. I should have a diary that nosy people read and I should have a private diary where I write my true feelings. The way this house is, I should announce everything to the whole family, the amount of privacy I get. I go on to say, I might just do something drastic to really piss mum off. That might show her how fed up I am with being walked all over. If she reads this, she can think whatever she likes, but I'll know because I've never said any of this to anybody. Ha ha to mum, you won't have liked any of this much. Really? You can tell that at this point I am 15. In fact, I make a point at the beginning of this entry to highlight I am 12 days from my 16th birthday. Move forward not that much further. I'm scrolling through. I can't read some of these entries because they are in pencil. And then I write a very, very silly conversation that I had with a girl at school. I apologise now to her because I do still keep in touch with her. And about a boy who was incredibly popular and for some reason I got on with him. because, Which is strange because I'm not one of the popular people. Anyway, I talk about my dad's birthday and say that he would have been 39. And then I say that in the same entry entrance in the same entry I mention I've got a job at the fish and chip shop that was my second ever job things go up and down for a couple of weeks I miss days here and there good lord I talk about a boy that I saw at school that I really fancied and then skip forward just two days And I say, at the time I am writing this, I wish I was dead. I can't close a door or even try and strangle Thomas pretending he's her. Now, don't get really bad. Thomas is my teddy bear. I've still got him. He's still in one piece, though he did get shrunk in the tumble dryer about 15 years ago when my nan put it on a really high setting. Poor thing is no longer as big as he once was. I can't do this, I can't do that, I'm constantly being put down. What have I got to do to to get people to listen to me and how I feel? I wish I could do something to make myself feel better, but I can't think of anything. I'm not allowed my own opinion. If I do, then she puts me down. What am I supposed to do? I missed out on a lot. I was always keeping an eye on them. I used to read to my sister because she couldn't sleep. 
Mum was lucky she either kept everything to herself or told someone, namely me. I've got my own problems, but to everyone else, they're not big enough to worry about or they're not real and I have to sort them out for myself. I can't live like this anymore. I want to kill my problem and one of the only ways to do that is to kill myself. That is not a way any 16-year-old should feel. I'm not right reading any of this out to make you feel pity for me. Remember, this is the diary of a 16-year-old girl, so it's 30 years old. Oh my God, that's so old. Um, it's not so old. I just feel that the diary is very old and the fact that it's still in relatively good condition is saying something for how I've stored it for all these years. But my journal goes up and down in emotion and that is the point when I was reading it this weekend that is the point I realized that I had a problem and then when I think about all of the ways that the relationship I have with my mum have gone up and down over the years I realized that a lot of the triggers and a lot of the causes for it I've actually noted down I have sounds weird (laughs) like I'm taking it to court but I have evidence of the way I felt and they weren't overly emotive dramatic well okay so we're a little bit dramatic but they weren't overly emotive overly descriptive pieces of text they weren't fiction they were my true feelings and I feel sad for 16 year old me I'm not sure if there's anything I can do to change things for 16 year old me But hopefully, knowing that I do get the help in later years would be a comfort to the girl that I used to be. Okay, so I still suffer. But as my my psychiatrist and my doctor and my GP and the specialist that I saw and the therapist that I went to have all told me, your brain just works differently. Not sure that's a good thing, but it is probably a better explanation than it will go away, because it hasn't. If the last few years have shown me anything, it's that I can cope with a lot more than I used to be able to. But then reading that, I think I coped with quite a lot. And I'm not as weak as I used to think I was. And as people used to say I was, as I've read there, my mum was constantly telling me that I was weak and that I couldn't do anything for myself and that I just need to buck up. In fact, when I first got officially diagnosed with my issues, when I was in my late 20s, my grandmother said to me, and I quote, I don't know why you're so depressed. You've got no reason. Your life's been really easy. Okay, did that sound easy to anybody? Because I don't think it sounded that great. I'm not going to end on this note. In fact, I think if I carry on talking about this, I'm going to end up having nightmares this evening. What I am going to say is things have changed. They do get better with a lot of help you do or I have managed to acclimatize and adjust medication is still something I take on a daily basis twice a day if I'm being honest and I take more than one type of medication 
but I cope. I hold down a full-time job. I do this podcast, which in a way is kind of therapy. I have actually got a better relationship with my mum than I had as a teenager. In fact, to be fair, I think a lot of teenagers, especially if they're the oldest in the family, do have problematic relationships with their mums or their dads if they're male. I, I don't know. As I said, my, my father passed away when I was quite young and I miss him every single day. But I can barely remember what he looked like unless I look at a photo. And I'm not going to cry, even though I can feel the tears welling. I'm going to move on. It does get better. And if you do have problems, please talk to somebody. Don't bottle it all up and shove it in a diary and leave it to fester for years as I did. It doesn't do anybody, especially you, any favours. Now, I'm going to move on to good news because if I carry on talking like this, I will cry and I don't want to be heard crying on the podcast because that that will last for (laughs) forever. And I'm not as vulnerable as I I used to be. So, good news. As many of you will know, my mum had chemotherapy at the beginning of the year. As I said, relationship with her has improved. I think writing a letter from when I was at my therapist and destroying it made me realise I was in control. I couldn't change how she felt about things. I could only control how I felt. So I had to either adjust or completely cut contact. Anyway, she had chemo at the beginning of the year and when lockdown came into place, her therapy stopped. A couple of months prior to the end of her therapy she stopped being able to eat solid food. Nobody knew why. She was supposed to have seen someone back in March, April time because it started in January, yet nothing happened because of the lockdown. Then it took a further few months for anything to progress past seeing a dietitian. This week, in fact, on Monday, she got a diagnosis. It's only taken since January and we're now, what, October? So it's taken 10 months, but she finally has a diagnosis. It's not amazing news because there are certain things that they cannot change, but it turns out that only one side of her esophagus doesn't work properly. The other side is okay. So she has some therapies that she's got to do every single day. They've taught her a new method of eating which sounds really strange when you think about it how else do you eat apart from swallow but apparently position of your head changes the way that your esophagus works and she also has seen far more of her esophagus than I think she actually ever wanted to but that is good news well not the esophagus not seeing the internal esophagus workings or anything but the fact that they have a diagnosis is fantastic news so She won't be feeling really, really depressed and horrible at Christmas because she will be able to eat, just not as much as always. I wish I could say the same for myself. Okay, so that's just about it for this week. I ended on a high, which is what I wanted, even given everything else that happened. I hope you discovered a film that you possibly will want to watch if you've got a spare 90 minutes and you can't find anything else and maybe got to know just a little bit more about me and also the things that I've gone through and 
mental health stuff and also fantastic news for my mum. I'm pretty active over on social media so if you want to follow me to find out what I've been up to between recordings or want to just come over and say hi to me or any of the other fantastic podcasters on Twitter I promise none of us bite you can find me over at need underscore three underscore mugs and on Facebook I am not before coffee podcast I post on both sites pretty regularly about books I've been reading, episode planning and a lot of other podcast related stuff. You will also find out if I have to change my schedule because of things like lost voice or throat infections. Well, I've had a rum to get through the latter part of the episode and several cups of coffee, but I need another one. So I'm going to go and put the kettle on. Until next time, this is me saying farewell and I'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.